Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Thanks for that, Rhea. Well, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, we've got my panel, Ali Mirage, who's the founder of the Contrarian Prize, the writer, Candice Holdworth, and Jeevan Sander, an economist at King's College London. Good evening to you, and especially to you, Candice, a new face on GB News. We always like new faces, don't we? You are very welcome tonight. Uh, you know the drill as well, don't you, for Jubes & Co. It's not just about us here, it's about you at home as well. What's on your mind tonight? You can get in touch with me on email, gbviews at gbnews.uk is, of course, the email address. You can tweet me at gbnews or at Michelle Jubes. In fact, uh, you'll remember, if you were paying attention at the top, uh, I'll be talking about assisted dying. Nice, cheery subject there to end the show on. So we'll be running a Twitter poll tonight asking, are you in favour of it or not? Get yourself on Twitter, tell me your thoughts before the end of the show. Uh, and don't forget, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. Um, we've got an app, we're on the radio. Wherever you are, you are very, very welcome. You've already been getting in touch. My first topic tonight, by the way, is childcare. A topic, I think, that affects us all. Not if you're John, though, my listener tonight. He says, you choose to have kids, pay for them. They're your responsibility, not mine. That's John's view. Rhea, though, says childcare should be free for the first child, and after that, it should be paid for. Where do you stand on this? The reason that I'm asking is because the uh, government have launched their campaign, Childcare Choices. This is a conversation, isn't it? We go round and around and around in circles. Whose responsibility is it to pay for childcare? The parents, I hear you screaming at home. I can almost hear you from here. And that's fine. But what about if it's too expensive? Uh, people will then say, well, stay at home with your kids then. That's great. But what if you can't afford to do that? What, what about if you actually need to uh, work in order to pay your way to get on in life? What then? Well, the government's got a few plans up its sleeve. One of them is altering the ratio at nurseries. So imagine this. Have you got a two-year-old? Are you familiar with two-year-olds? I've got an almost two-year-old. Um, and dealing with just him on his own, it's a handful. So imagine this. If you are at a nursery now, you could potentially be responsible for five of them, five two-year-olds. Currently, it's one to four. Uh, many will say in Scotland it's one to five there, but here we are in England, and I'm wondering, should that be the strategy here? The government also wants to make it easier for people to be uh, a childminder as well, make that less costly and less cumbersome to get into it. Candice, I'm going to start with you. Where do you stand on all of this? I don't think we should be deregulating childcare. That goes against my instincts. I would usually say, if prices are too high, let's look at deregulation. But I think this is the one area where I would say, no, we need more government investment. I think we should just put as much as we can into this, especially after the lockdown. I think we should put everything into children. Let's help them hire more staff so that you can actually have higher teacher to child ratios, I would actually go the other way. I don't think you should have five children to one adult. I would even have smaller ratios if you could. Uh, Jeevan, do you think it makes a difference, one to four, one to five? Well, this I can't speak to, right? I'm not sure which would be the best policy in that particular regard. I'm not an expert in the area. What I do know is that it is far too expensive childcare in this country. We have the highest in the OECD, 
You mentioned earlier those without children, should they pay higher taxes or fund it? Look, I don't have children, but I also believe that everybody in this country should have free, affordable childcare. It's very high Free? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So you're comfortable with paying for my child to go to nursery? Absolutely. It's one of the That's best investments. Well, I tell you what, Jeevan, it's quite expensive. If you don't mind, then I might send you my bill at the moment, then we, we don't need to wait for the government to create this as a policy. If you want to chip in, do it for now if you want. You should absolutely do so. I mean, not me, myself, Michelle, you're much richer than I am, obviously. Oh, but in terms of free childcare, absolutely, it's one of the best investments you can make in this country. It's the biggest return you can imagine. We know how important those early years are for the rest of your career and your life. Those children will grow up, they'll work and they'll do great things, absolutely. So before I bring you in, Ali, I do want to just test your theory a little bit. So you say free for all children, so I can have six children and you'll still pay for free, all of them? The same way you pay the free childcare when they go to school. Yes, you do say, by the way, it's early years education. I think you should have free early years education. Full time? Full time. Full time, free childcare for as many kids as I want to have paid for by you, the taxpayer, even if you don't have kids. What do you think to Jeevan's suggestion? Yes, no, tell me. Ali, where do you sit on it all? Oh, look, the government doesn't have any money, so it's trying to find ways of easing the burden for families uh, without you know, raising taxes or, or borrowing more, and this is one of the things it's come out with. Now, uh, there's a ratio of um, five uh, to one in Scotland, What one, one uh, a carer for uh, five kids, uh, at the moment in the UK, it's, uh, or at least in England rather, it's one in one to four. I don't think it, it sounds to me like it's that much of an incremental increase. But the, look, we've also got to be honest about ourselves. an extra two-year-old running yeah, around? Look, look, I mean, if, it, if they can manage it in Scotland, I think we can manage it here. Oof. It's not ideal. It's not ideal. And I, I, do, I do accept your point, Michelle, that, that uh, two-year-olds are very difficult to manage. I have, I have um, a niece of three, actually, and I, I know how difficult it is. Uh, but look, the, the, the reality is that we have to be honest with ourselves. If we want to have the kind of Nordic levels of investment here, the best the best places in the, in the world to bring up kids in the early years are places like Norway, Denmark, Sweden, etc. But then they have much smaller populations and they invest much, much more heavily in this particular area. In Sweden, for example, you get 16 months... Um, paid parental leave if your child is born. We don't have that kind of thing here. So it's not, it's partly cultural, it's partly investment. At the moment, given where the fiscal situation is, I, I don't think we've got many choices. The problem with this policy, however, is that if uh, childminders or, or, or nurseries that are doing this don't pass on the cost savings to the actual end consumer, um, that's a problem. But in a free market, you can't force them to do that. So the extra money that they get in from that taking that fifth child, you would hope that they would reduce costs across the border, at least keep them stable. But they might invest in capital expenditure equipment. They might do loads of... They might increase wages for their staff, which is also very important. So you can't regulate that because it's not a monopoly situation. That's something, unfortunately, the government can't control. Hmm. I want you guys to tell me where you stand on this. Uh, I mentioned the first email that I got tonight already was somebody saying, I'm not paying for your kids. Uh, if you want kids, have them uh, by all means, but pay for them yourself. Um, the pushback I would give to that is, of course, we want the population to continue. And a lot of people who will say, uh, I'm not paying for it, you pay for it. I wonder what your um, thought is on things like the immigration policies, because a lot of people will say, I'm not uh, contributing to childcare, I don't have these children, they're your children. Simultaneously, then they will say, we want reduction uh, in immigration figures. Well, then you tell me, 
how do you want the population to continue? Because a lot of people, they won't be able to have, for example, multiple children. They might just have to stop at one. Martin's been in touch saying, come off it, Michelle. You choose to have kids. You know what uh, childcare costs. So don't have them if you can't afford it. But Martin, what about if someone's circumstances change, for example? What then? What if, what if I don't know, you might be married or something and heaven forbid your partner passes away and you're now a single income family. What about that? Um, do you think there should be any cut-off, Jeevan? So if someone's wealthy, they're earning whatever it is that they're earning, birth parents working, do you think that they should still get free childcare? Yes, of course, because systems that only, services that only exist for those who are on low to middle incomes also end up being poorer quality systems. When you have a universal system, it's higher quality for everybody involved. And I think that's reducing. We see it be very successful. Ali spoken earlier about Sweden and the Nordic countries. They have a universal system with high quality childcare. And in terms of your, your listeners earlier, look, we actually have the opposite problem in this country. This is our birth rate is too low. Compared to what we thought we were going to be in 2016, the birth rate has fallen by almost 15%. Mm. 100,000 fewer babies than we were expecting. And I'm of that age where my friends are either beginning to have or thinking about having children. And the cost is definitely a huge issue. They say, can I afford to have children? And especially, how can I afford to have my career? And this government both says, yes, you should work. But also, if you're going to work, where are your children going to go? And the costs are exorbitant. You know, talking over £1,000 a month here. I mean, I personally don't have children, but... How expensive that is. I agree. I think people do make that decision based on childcare costs. I mean, to have two children under five in childcare is prohibitive. And, you know, for many women, there's a small window in which you can actually have children. So these are, you know, really big decisions you have to make. But can you say I'm going to be a bit harsh now? Because they're a big dis that is a big decision, a big consideration, etc. For a segment of society, then there will be another segment of society that don't think twice about the cost, they'll just have as many kids as they want and they will just expect the taxpayer to pick up the cost of these children and they won't go to work and all the rest of it. So I have, there's people that I can think of, I obviously won't name them, but I certainly know people that have uh, had multiple children, haven't worked and the taxpayer has picked up all that bill. So for me, there's almost two types of person, the responsible, career-minded, can I do this? And the other type that's just, I'm doing it, you can pay. Yes, yeah, you need the right incentives. You definitely need the right incentives. Um, is Do people choose to have six kids because childcare is free? I'm not sure about that. I mean, Okay, six might have been an exaggeration because anyway, you can't get child benefit for ongoing over and over all the time. So I, I refresh my six, I reduce it. Let's just say two. Two. I'll meet at two. Yes. But look, I mean, you know, it isn't just about parents' personal decisions. It is a societal investment. We do need to invest in children. And we are suffering now where we're having an aging population and people having fewer and fewer kids. And that's going to start becoming a big problem in the future. So we do need to think about it less in an individualistic sense, I think, and more in a communal sense. It's really important. Uh, uh, yeah, just on that, Michelle, I think, I think Candice makes um, a good point here because... The question is, as a society, do we believe that child rearing is a public good, a public service? Mm. And it actually, if you if you look at where we are, and Candice has mentioned the aging population, even as well, we do have an aging population here. And ultimately, if you're gonna, there are two ways of handling this. You either rely on immigration, which has got all sorts of other issues to deal with, and we've seen the backlash against the massive influx of um, the, the numbers were just too high for a lot of people to, to contend with and they put pressure on public services, et cetera. The other way is to actually increase your birth rate. Now, we haven't really had an open public conversation in this country for generations about that particular issue. 
and about the fact that how do we incentivize, support families who are actually wanting to have kids because it is a public good and we all need it. We all need people to work in the NHS or clean our bins or work in the city or do whatever they want to do with their lives. But we do need that. And that's something that we have to face up to and something that the Nordic countries have been way ahead of us on for many, many years. Now, the, the issue there is if you're Norway with a 1.2 trillion um, sovereign wealth fund and a very small population compared to us, so you can afford to be pretty generous on these things. We, we're not in the same position, but we need to look at this in the round and think collectively how we do it. And also, society and culture needs to change to view this as a public service. If I may also, we're talking about short-term economic, sorry, long-term economic growth, but in the short-term as well, women in particular face a huge penalty from childcare. We see that gender pay gap, it really opens up after the first child is born. And actually that reduces their wages, it reduces economic growth, it reduces productivity. If women could go back to work, if childcare was more affordable before you hit that three-year free entitlement, would see higher wages and more productivity and more growth in the economy. But Candice, one of the sentiments that's coming through on my um, inbox right now is why are mums going back to work? What have you had kids for if you want to go to work? What do you say to that? I know, I know. Well, look, I think when you've had kids, you enjoy it very much, but I think most women know that they do want to do something else as well, especially if they've invested so much in their education. Look, there are women as well who have two or three kids and decide, that's it, I'm done, that's what I want to focus on. Maybe when the kids are older, they'll then go back into work. And I think that that's also something we should focus on, allowing roots back into work for older women who've taken time out to have kids. And I think there needs to be more recognition of that. I think that women do feel that there's a penalty for leaving work to have children. And they sort of feel this pressure, like the questions you've been getting, stay home and look after your kids. And then they do that. And then when they get back into work, that isn't really recognized, you know, that they've made that sacrifice. And they've used all those skills because you do gain a lot of skills. Of course. Fantastic multitasking and everything. Uh, do you know what I'd say back to you guys that are emailing in saying, why don't your uh, mum stay at home or what are you having kids for to go to work? I would ask you, why don't you say that about the dads? Mm. You know, there's two parents in this scenario, presumably. Uh, you've got a mum and a dad. So you tell me. Uh, if you're someone that's emailed in and said to me, Michelle, why, uh, you know, why aren't the mum staying at home? That's what we did. You tell me, why is it the mum that you think should stay at home? Why not the dad? But Michelle, um, do dads do stay at home now. I think that's changing. It's not uh, me, Ali. It's these guys messaging well, well, me. They're well, all saying well, to well, me. You, you, some of your viewers are behind the times because there are there are dads who stay at home, uh, and it, it depends on each and each individual family's personal circumstances. Do you think there's a stigma to that? I think. Well, there might be a stigma to it, and and there, there, there's a whole debate around. You know, I mean, look. Even, even if you watch na nature programs, you'll see that the, the kids are always cuddling up to the mother. I mean, it's just the way it is, right? However, every family has got its own particular set of circumstances. It may be the case that the woman has a much more higher-paying job and has got a much better career trajectory than the man. If that's the case, then collectively families will make the decision that, on balance, it's better for the husband to stay at home. I mean, those are things you have to leave, obviously, up to individual families. So I think it is changing over time, uh, and I think your viewers should sort of recognise that. Ali says that you're uh, backwards, you should move with the times. That's what Ali thinks. Men, you know, get yourselves at home and if that's what you want to do. Candice, you want to come in? I do. I think we need to value fathers, absolutely. I think that was one thing I really noticed when I had children is 
we had time to sort of bond with the baby, spend time with them, grow into being mothers. For the dad, it was straight back to work. There we go, two weeks off work, you're back to work. There was no time for them to sort of acclimatize to being a father, and it's such an important role. And a lot of dads take a lot on now. They'll do a full day's work, they'll come back, they'll take the kids off the mum, and they get very stressed, actually. I don't know what the perfect solution is, but I definitely don't think everything should be on the mum. I think we should prioritise being a dad as well. I think it's a really important role in society. Yeah, I've got to say, though, some of you guys at home, you are not having any of it. <laughs> you are not having any of this concept of what Jeevan's suggesting, which is uh, let's all pay for other people's kids. Uh, in fact, actually, what has David... You've just emailed... Literally, literally, David, as I'm saying this, you've just emailed in and said, wow... GB News is sitting there debating me paying for other people's kids. The channel's losing it. You've gone work. Move on, says David. OK, David, well, you tell me then. If, uh, if we're not focusing on everyone having children because that's what they want to do and they can afford to do it, you tell me how then do you think society will continue if the rate of children is slowing down and down and down because people can't afford it? I look forward to your part two response. Lots of you guys getting in touch about that childcare. I have to say, the overwhelming sentiment is, no, you don't want to pay for somebody else's kids. Uh, Rosie in Wales, she says, sorry, Michelle, no, I'm definitely not happy paying for other people's childcare. My mum brought us up, not a stranger. My parents went without for us because we were wanted. She says, why do people have children and then not want to look after them? Why don't they think of their child? She says, I could say so much more, but she won't. But Rosie, come on. I've got a little boy uh, and I work. My son is very, very much wanted, uh, very much loved. Sometimes, as a mum, though, you want to be more than just a mum. You want to be an individual as well. It doesn't take away from the child, I would say. It adds to the experience that the child gets. You tell me, though. What's your thoughts on that? Right, let's talk about motorways and protesters, shall we? Yeah, something to... I was about to say relax with, but no, it gets my uh, goat, this one does. Because, have you been on a motorway today? If so, you might have noticed people basically, like, doing slurred drivings and all the rest of it. There you go, that's the routes that have been affected. It's all about... You know, whether or not the government should pay, should help more when it comes to the tax and all the rest of it uh, that they're charging us for fuel. And by the way, if you're someone that's just got in touch about the children's one and said, why should I have to help subsidise other people's kids? Tell me, if you're a non-driver, do you want your tax, basically your the, the checker's revenues, to be dented because all of a sudden it's taking less tax from fuel? Do you want to help basically subsidise drivers? Do you care about that one or not? Uh, but first, before I get into that, I want to ponder the whole motorway uh, suggestion, Ali. I personally think it's deeply inappropriate for a motorway to be leveraged as a point of protest, irrespective, I don't care what the cause is, it could be childcare costs and I still wouldn't support it. Do you think you should be able to even protest on a motorway in the first place? No, I don't. And I think it's utterly self-indulgent and selfish on the part of these people. I do understand why people are upset and angry and worried about the cost of fuel. I do understand it. Of course I do. And you think about the Gilets Jaunes protests, the Yellow Vest protests that started in, in France uh, back in 2018. And again, went on and on, on, on and on, didn't fuel, they? Right? So I do understand it. And particularly when you got the price of the pump now over 190, 191 a, a litre, 50 pence of that goes in fuel duty, then you've got VAT on top of that. So people are, people are feeling the squeeze and they feel that the 5% 5p reduction in fuel duty so far is in inadequate from the government. But also, I think the government 
And we as a society need to have an open conversation, right? We're just hearing um, the prime minister giving another billion, committing another billion to Ukraine for the war. We're hearing Liz Truss giving speeches about uh, helping the recovery effort in Ukraine. This is all laudable and, and commendable. We need to understand that we're going to be in this for the long haul, potentially. Mm -hmm. And fuel costs are being driven up partly by, yes, resurgence on the back of demand uh, after two years of closing down the world economy, but also because there's a war in Europe. Is, is the West and are we in the UK prepared for the economic pain and hardship that we're going to have to suffer on the back of the foreign policy that's been pursued by the government? I'm not saying it's right or wrong foreign policy. I'm saying it's la maybe laudable. But are we having an open conversation with ourselves about pain within three months, three or four months, where we're squealing, right? This could go on for months, if not years. And do you think Putin's going to actually now uh, play, play softball with us? Of course he's not. He's enjoying the fact that he's cutting, cutting uh, supplies of gas by 40% in the Nord Stream 1 pipeline to Germany, which is going to inflate their prices. They're talking about rationing of gas in Germany, right? We're not even talking about rationing here, and people are squealing. I understand people are suffering. We're all, we're all in it. We're all suffering. People on the lower income should be helped as much as possible. But no one is having an open, honest conversation about the costs to the economy and the fact that if we want to do this and we want to support Ukraine, it's going to involve pain, economic pain for us, and we should be prepared for that. Well, you can't say no one's having the conversation because we're having the conversation. <laughs> exactly. We will lead the way with the conversation. Jeevan, where are you with it all? Well, in terms of the war or at least the Putin invasion of Ukraine, I mean, absolutely, we should be supporting them. I appreciate there are costs, but I would say assuage the costs on families. In terms of what they want here, a fuel duty cut, I'm not opposed to a fuel duty cut at all. Like, if that's what we want to do, then fine. The problem is the last one we had just wasn't very effective. It took £3, I think, off the, pro off the price of filling up a tank. People really didn't feel it. It cost five billion. I think more effective ways to funnel that cash directly to households. The other problem of fuel duty cut benefits those with bigger cars and more expensive cars as well. But look, I'm not personally that opposed. I also know how difficult people are feeling it. And those who do drive, of course, like, you know, I'm not sure who else in this panel, but I live in London and I go by, you know, tube and bus, and therefore I don't feel the price of petrol, but I know for a lot of people out there they do. Yeah, but you can go by um, things like, I don't know, tubes and bus, whatever, because like you say, you don't have children mm. yet, and when you're uh, a busy parent, you've got kids to kind of get here, there and everywhere, and it's not easy to, for example, cycle, it's not easy to just get on trains and tubes and all the rest of it, and also when you start getting outside of London, outside of the bigger mm. cities, you know, some of the transport links, they're absolutely appalling, so you have to drive in order to get from A to B. Uh, Candice, where are you on it? So, yes, I mean, I think... I don't think it's necessary for them to be protesting on the highway because I think Rishi Sunaka City's open to a fuel duty cut. And I think it's um, across the board. There's a lot of support for it from Labour, from the Conservatives, from non-partisan organisations like the AA. But I think it's a very interesting point Ali makes, and I think people are scared to talk about it. You know, we have committed to helping Ukraine, and it is important... But what does this mean for the future? What does this mean for our energy bills? And how long can we sustain that? And I do think it's important to have that discussion. And people, I think, do feel afraid to sort of talk about their self-interest in that way, but it is a very serious discussion that needs to be had. But I don't think there's any shame in having that conversation because mm. I think a government's first and absolute primary responsibility is to its own citizens. You look after your citizens, you look after this country, you make sure we're on the straight and narrow, and then, and in my mind, kind of only then, do you then start looking out when you go, well, right, Michelle, everyone, I what can slightly. I do? You, you know, I, I think that's a very valid point that you're making. 
But if the government chooses to say, look, the price of freedom in Ukraine and sovereignty and maintain, maintenance of sovereignty for a nation such as Ukraine is that we need to support them and give them money, that's fine. But it's not just the one billion here or there that we're giving them. It's the effect on energy prices. Now, that mm. may be perfectly laudable, but then have an open and honest conversation with the public about the pain involved. And at the moment, the public is exhibiting no threshold for pain whatsoever. So, I mean, the, the reality is if this goes on for months or years, because Putin, look, let, let's think about it from Putin's perspective. He is miscalculated. This mm -hmm. has not gone the way he wanted. It's going to last a long time, potentially. He's not going to leave without, without any land here. We're not even talking about even close to a peace deal right now. He's bedded in. He's got nothing to lose anymore, right? So this could be lasting for months, if not years. But we've not been talking about a peace... I mean, OK, yeah, fair enough, we're going a bit off-topic, but let's stick with it Sorry, for a second. No, 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 let's stick with it for a second. To the price yeah, it is. Of fuel. Um, what I found fascinating about all of this, you had that whole kind of NATO thing in Madrid. Was it last week? Feels like ages ago, but I think it was just last week. All of these kind of people coming together, yes, here's our pledges for more money and more this and more that. I don't even think I saw the word peace factor mm. pretty much anywhere in those conversations. Well, well, they're not They're not at the moment because they're saying it's up to Zelensky to decide that, and that's fine. Of course, I mean, they have to, the Ukrainians have to be in the lead, and at the moment, Zelensky's trying to play hardball because he wants to push them out of Donbass. But they were even talking about pushing them out of Crimea, which in 2014 they took, and no-one was talking about that until the last few months, about getting the Russians out of Crimea. That's a whole different ballgame. I just can't... Look, I'm, I think Kissinger, who knows a little bit about geopolitics, right... Uh, having achieved detente with Russia and the opening to China, uh, said that there will unfortunately have to be a conversation about land for peace. It's unpalatable. That's probably where we'll end up. But it's for the Ukrainians to decide. I accept that. But we need to be honest with our populace that things are going to get really tough. And look, people are having their heads blown off in Severodonetsk, right? That's thankfully not happening here. But our contribution to this war is that we suffer and we pay high prices of fuel pump. That's our, that's our cost. There is, there, it doesn't, you know, I actually agree we should stand by the Ukrainian side. It is for me, there's no debate around that. I would say Kissinger, given his own experience in Laos and Cambodia and dealing with Vietnam under Nixon, is not a guy I would, you know, follow his advice on. But more broadly, whether or not we did send arms or support them, gas prices would still be higher, oil prices would still be higher. We still have to deal with the consequences of that. That is a sort of consequence of Putin's invasion. Slight good news, gas prices have started to fall, so I hope they will start to stabilise, but we will have to endure the pain no matter what. And the question for us will be, will we stand behind a democratic nation with them and support them, or will we not? But our gas prices, our oil prices will remain elevated regardless. But, even one thing... Look, you're an, econ you're, you're, you're an economist, right? Um, the government also has to be open with people about who's going to pay for this, right? So everyone wants a cut somewhere. People are upset about pensioners getting the triple lock reinstated, right? Which I think is also misplaced right now where we are, but that was a decision the government took. Other people are upset about the national insurance increase. People who drive cars are upset about fuel. Where does the money come from? The 400 billion of debt that we've got. Unless we mortgage the future of our kids, we were just talking about kids, want to mortgage their futures and, they, and our grandkids' futures, then fine, let's be open about it. We're mortgaging them, right? But if we don't want to do that and we want to try and take some of this pain and recognise that for two years we've been locked down and that's going to cost some money when you put people on furlough, where does the money come from? If I may, so in terms of where our, we sit in terms of our, our debt, right, our debt to GDP is 100%. Our loan-to-income ratio as a country is 1%. When you get a mortgage, your loan-to-income ratio is about three to one. The difference between ourselves and the government is that we unfortunately will die. We have to pay down our debts, debts to zero. Governments don't. So we don't have to worry about the sustainability of our debt. In terms of raising taxes, though, look, you spoke about national insurance. There's a way to raise what was the 12 billion from the richest people 
in this country. You get a five billion from a ta transaction tax in the city, another five billion from capital gains tax reform and two billion on a mansion tax. There are ways to do that. 15% more billionaires than when this pandemic started. The average billionaire's wealth up by 600 million. There are ways to get this money, right? But there are ways to get it from those wealthiest people in society. And I'm not talking about even the top 1%. I'm really talking about the top 0.1%. That's actually, I agree with you. I actually agree with you. That's another thing we're not talking about is actually the massive inequality that we've seen in the last few years. The Davos elite going around pontificating and lecturing the rest of us. And you know I'm a capitalist. I believe in capitalist, capitalism. I believe in the profit motive. Michelle, you're an entrepreneur by background. We believe in this. However, if you've got a society where the discrepancies are so big and you've got protests happening, this is going to lead to civil unrest. And you're seeing this with the unions fighting back. It's not a healthy position for a society to be in. Yeah, and Candice, I mean, we're talking about, and people are saying, how, what happened to the fuel protest uh, conversation? But this is kind of linked, it is. But one of the things that I find quite fascinating, not to undermine anything that's just been said here, is that a lot of the financial suffering that people are experiencing now, it's often blamed on a, well, look at what's going on in Ukraine, look at what's going on in Ukraine. Often people are not so willing, when I say people, I mean government, not so willing to say, well, actually, look at the consequences of lockdown. Because it's not, this is not all just about, look what's going on over in Ukraine, all the rest of it. The cost, the, the uh, processes, regulations, restrictions that we had imposed on us have absolutely contributed to what we are now experiencing in our purses. Yes, and you won't see much recognition of that because people who enacted the lockdown probably don't want to take responsibility for what's going on. I feel like the debate is very restricted around these issues. That's why it's so good to see this back and forth like this, having a conversation like this, speaking very pragmatically about the choices we have. There needs to be a much bigger discussion about the whole issue because I think we're lurching from crisis to crisis mm. and there's very little democratic engagement from people, what we want now, what we want, not just in the short term, but the long term. We also need to be thinking about what is our long term energy policy, you know, Relying on gas, for instance. Maybe we start need to start looking into nuclear and, you know, other options as well. So June's yeah. been in touch saying, Michelle, we should absolutely have the right to protest, including on motorways. The government and the opposition are not listening towards the electorate. They are wasting money all over the place and we have had enough. David says it's strange how people were arrested today for obstructing the motorways, but when green protesters did the same while gluing themselves to the road, the coppers basically went out, made them tea and brought them cakes and all the rest of it. He says it's dual standards uh, from the workplace. That's David, not mine. Uh, I'll tell you, did you see how they dealt? Um, we speak about protesters. This is a different uh, type of protester uh, over in France. Do you remember when we had the people here that were gluing themselves down to the road? Uh, look at how the uh, French police dealt with them. Watch. Oh, it's no good without sound. Oh. Yeah, you see, you only got half the picture there, ladies and gents, but uh, I know some of you are listening anyway and not watching, so I'll, I'll become a storyteller for you. Basically, two people decided to glue themselves to uh, a road in France, obviously as part of this kind of climate campaign. The police had absolutely none of it, walked up, just basically yanked their hands off the floor, and if you heard the sound, it made like a great kind of Velcro, rippy sound. It was excellent. Uh, and the guy, um, the guy there, you'd have thought, I mean, look at him. If you are watching and not listening, I mean, 
he'd make a great footballer, that lad. It's almost like looking at him, you'd think he'd ripped his arm off his, out of his shoulder socket. It's absolutely ridiculous, his response to that. Probably wants to sue the police or something, I don't know. But anyway, point is, uh, I think if we got a bit tougher on some of these protesters, we'd have a little bit less disruption. But the sentiment from you guys is that people need to protest. It's all gone too far. Where do you stand on it? GBviews at gbnews.uk is the email or tweet me at Michelle Jubes. Let me know your thoughts on that one. Right, uh, let's move on, shall we? It's legal in Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Germany and Spain. You can also do it in Canada and some parts of the US. What am I talking about? Well, of course, assisted dying. This afternoon, MPs have debated whether or not to make it legal here. Now, I have to say, this gets a little bit complicated because when you talk about assisted dying, there's a few different kind of categories and uh, types and different names and different sentences and consequences. But if the person involved is terminally ill and has mental capacity, which is what we're talking about here, should it be legal for them to end their lives and to be assisted, I guess, in doing so, Jeevan? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, let's also where the public seems to be far ahead of where Parliament is. MPs, are a strong majority rather, the public has supported assisted dying for as long as I can remember. I have a friend who works in, in intensive care in A&E. And he says, look, when you have somebody who's like 95 or 96 years old and they have a heart attack, we can resuscitate them, we can keep them alive, but what fundamentally is the point? Life isn't just about the length of time, but the quality of time. And I know by the time I get there, I would certainly want to have that choice. And I have seen, and I'm sure other of your listeners would have seen, people who towards the end of their life were in extreme pain. And actually, I would think if they could have had that choice, they would have rather have gone earlier. And if I was in their position, I would have liked to have gone earlier as well. And aren't you worried that this might be abused or it could be abused by, say, some family members that want to get their mitts on the, I don't know, say, the family house or whatever? So there has to be legal safeguards in place. But we've also seen this rolled out, obviously, in many other nations, as you've pointed out. And actually, looks like so far, that is a system that is working. But also my right to life. You know, what does my right to life mean? And actually, if I have a right to life, I also have a right to end that life. And I think we should remember that as well. Ali? I disagree. Uh, I think it's a uh, very slippery slope. And uh, I think the example Jeevan's given of someone having a heart attack in their 90s and whether you resuscitate them or not is slightly different. I think that would be a dis I'm not a medical person, but as I understand it, that would be a decision for the clinicians and the family to take. What we're talking about here is someone who's got mental capacity and is being put in this position where they actually want to decide themselves whether they terminate their own right to life. Now, you could envisage a situation where you've got some pretty unscrupulous relatives who are trying to pop you off to get their hands on your inheritance, right, and putting pressure on you. And I, and I think that that's, that, that's wrong. I, I don't think people should um, be put in that position. And, yes, there may be very valid reasons why someone might want to take this uh, route, but I just feel very uncomfortable with it. When you start actually putting your, uh, putting your life in the hands of doctors to make a decision, albeit with your family, to basically commit assisted suicide, for me, it's deeply uncomfortable. I'm, I agree. I just worry that a lot of elderly people as well, they become very depressed. I mean, that's acknowledged by people who work in psychiatric elder care. And they can begin to have very dark thoughts and begin to feel like they're a burden. Yeah. And that's a big, big concern for me. You know, we don't care, take care of older people's mental health well enough at all, especially when they're end of their life and they're very ill. I do understand that people don't want to die in pain and they don't want to suffer, and I absolutely empathise with that. But I do think that end-of-life care is not great. And 
I have a similar position, you know, with the early years. At the end of life, we should put as much into it as possible, you know, when people are vulnerable and improve it if we can. But Ali, you know, we're talking about like if someone's elderly, this, that and the other. What about if you're a young, fit person and then all of a sudden you get diagnosed with an illness and you're, you can see the future mapped out because you can see, you know, other people that have had it. You've seen the route that you're potentially going to go down. Your body starts kind of failing you and your mind is there, but your body's not there. And you live a shadow of your life and you decide this isn't for me. Why should you essentially be forced, if you like, to carry on living a life that you barely recognise from the one that you once held against your wishes and you have to just see out your days, maybe in pain, maybe not, but certainly in a way that's restrictive and different to the way that you wanted to. Why should that be forced upon you? Well, look, I mean, it's, it, I do empathise uh, with people in that position. I, I really do. And it's a very, very difficult situation they find themselves in. I just feel deeply uncomfortable with the, the notion of taking of one's life. Even, even suicide more generally, actually, I feel uncomfortable with. That, you know, I don't think we, it's something that we should be encouraged, encouraging. And I think there have to be safeguards around it. Now, that's my personal view. I know a lot of people take a different view. The public seem to be 70% in favour of this or over 70% in favour of it. And there are very complex moral uh, questions about it, uh, but also questions of judgment and also of the individual that feels that they're being put in that position. So it's not ideal, but that's just a personal view that I hold and I feel very strongly about it. I've asked you guys at home, by the way, where do you stand on it? Uh, there's a Twitter poll running. About 80% of you so far are in favour of it, 20% of you not. So the viewers are in your kind of camp, even. That makes a change. Yeah, um, yeah, it does, uh, actually. Yeah, well done, everyone. Well, I did found the contrarian prize. Of course, I mean, I'm, I'm contrarian, of course. Yeah, back in Jeevan, we like this. Here we go. Um, I think, look, the point there about encouraging, I think it's about encouraging, right? I think people who, when they come to that point in their life, get to make that decision. And also, there is a question about what do we actually want the end of our lives to look like? Should it just be about length or do we want it to be about quality? What do we want, given that we now live in a world where actually we can extend our lives far beyond what we could have imagined 50, 60, or for the most of humanity, the idea that we could keep prolonging life, that we could resuscitate people, keep them alive on a machine. These are things that biologically, emotionally, evolutionary, we weren't really prepared for. And yet now this is where we find ourselves. So right at the end, what do we want that end to look like and what do we want it to mean? I agree with an honest conversation, by the way. I think it's an honest conversation we have to have. How do we want to end our lives, given that we know we want them to end? And for my personal view, and I think those at home appear would agree, the length is not the only thing and it's not the quality. most important thing. Well, yeah, quality. When you get to that end point, I think you'd want to go, or I'd want to go with my faculty and my dignity. I wouldn't want to be going shriveled. I also want to go, again, my, uh, my friend who works in intensive care in A&E. Most people who die end up dying in a hospital. I wouldn't want to die in a hospital. I would want to die at home. I wouldn't want to constantly be going in and out. I've had relatives who spent years going in and out and at the end were almost confined to those beds. I wouldn't want to go like that. I would want to go at home at the time of my choosing and say, OK, this is now finished. It's clear there's nowhere else to go. It's time to, uh, it's time to leave. Yeah, and I think the home thing for me is an interesting one as well, Candice, because if you are in that, uh, it must be an awful predicament, and if that's where you are and that's the kind of card you've been dealt, so to speak, to then have to, in some cases, I know that people have to go over to uh, places like Switzerland. I think that must be so awful to not be able to be in your own home. To, you've made that decision. It's what you want. And who are we to judge, ultimately, if that's your decision for your life? 
that you've got to go to a different country to achieve that. Yes, it's horrible. I mean, it's it's something that I, I think everyone feels viscerally. And why would you ever judge someone who was in that situation? I've seen young people be diagnosed with terminal illnesses and really, really, really struggle with it. And it is hard. But I, I'm just, I'm with Ali on this one. I'm not comfortable with the idea of assisting in suicide. I'm just, I'm just not, you know. Peter says, the law absolutely needs to allow for this. He goes on to say, we treat our dogs and cats, etc., with far more compassion than we do our own people, it seems. He says, the UK is falling behind so many countries. It is my right, or at least it should be, to die as I wish. That's what Peter says. Julia says, Michelle, I work in palliative care and I see assisted dying as unnecessary. Um, Basically, I think what you're saying there is that there's good palliative care at the moment, so this isn't necessary in that reason. She says, I'm also against legislating this as it would put disabled and vulnerable people at risk of feeling that they have a duty to die. She says it is the thin end of the wedge. Hmm. But, Julie, I mean, first and foremost, I applaud the work you do. Uh, it must be incredibly challenging. But the key thing there for me is you're saying you work in palliative care and somebody now doesn't have to die because palliative care is so good. And that's great, and I'm sure you do great work. But what if that patient has made that decision that despite your best efforts, despite all of the great palliative care that I know exists, despite all of that, that individual still chooses for that end to be here. Don't you think that they should have that choice? Um, I find it absolutely fascinating because I really do think there's quite strong feeling on both sides of this argument. I mean, what is the right one? Susan says, this should be a personal choice. I want the choice to end my life whenever I am ready. You then go on, though, Susan, to say either due to physical or emotional mental issues. And, I mean, where is that line? Because what we're talking about here is people that have got a terminal illness. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to leave you to ponder that one tonight. A nice, cheery thought for you all. When should you die? Whose choice should it be? There you go. That's your homework. Thank you very much to my panel. Thank you as well uh, at home for your thoughts. Like I said, 80% of you uh, in favour of assisted dying being legal, 20% of you therefore not. Some of you agreeing with me, by the way, on the other subjects about the protesters using the French way. That's what I say. Have a good night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Cur, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.